works. I was visiting with our, our deacons earlier t- uh, this morning and just talking about how we have the ebb and flow of life in all areas and uh, that, that also includes spiritually and sometimes you, you, you're kind of in the, the valley and sometimes you're in the peak and I don't know why but that uh, it just feels like the, the spirit is moving this morning at least um, I, I can just feel it and, and to sing this song glorify thy name in all the earth I don't I don't know that there's anything that I want more than for all of earth to glorify God for who He is and what He has done. And so that is my prayer for us this morning. But before we get to that, I want to spend just a few minutes leading up to that. I want, have, you ever, have you ever been asked a question and you thought, wow, that was kind of a ridiculous question? Well, I have a few times because I have kids and I work with youth. And, uh, and so sometimes you get some of those questions, like the question that is, uh, is there such thing as a dumb question? Well, think about that for a little bit. But here's some more questions that I found that make you scratch your head just a little bit. Before they invented drawing boards, what did they go back to? Some of these you're going to have to think about it. A minute later, you may get it. How did the man who invented cottage cheese know when he was done? How does a guy who drives the snowplow get to work? If Jimmy cracks corn and nobody cares, why is there a song about him? If a rabbit's feet is so lucky... What about the rabbit? Is drilling for oil boring? What do people in China call their good plates? What was the best thing before sliced bread? Why do feet smell and your nose runs? Who was the first person to open up an oyster and say, Mmm, that looks good, I'm going to eat it. You know, there's lots of kind of silly, ridiculous, confusing questions out there. And it seems like nobody is exempt from asking questions that are a little bit unusual or off topic or maybe don't seem to make sense, including Jesus Himself. Because as we have looked through this study over the last several weeks and will continue on, there's some questions that Jesus asks that make you say, huh? Or in this case, it makes you say, duh. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning because Jesus is going to ask a question that when He asks it, you want to think, Jesus, don't you know the answer to that question? I mean, that's a really ridiculous question. Of course! And yet, I think there's reasons why He asks that question and it's not quite as silly as you might think it is in the first place. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, you carry them everywhere. It's your sword. It's the Word of God that you have with you. Turn with me to John chapter 5. We've spent a lot of time in John the last several weeks, and we're going to camp out here in chapter 5, just the first few verses for a little bit, because we're going to look at a question that Jesus asked, and it just makes me a little curious. We're going to go ahead and read through this text and we're going to, 
read a few words and we'll stop for just a minute and we'll read a few more and we'll try to make our way through the first part of John chapter 5 and see if we can address the question that Jesus asks. John chapter 5. Before we go any further, let's just stop. I just I would feel better. Let's let's spend a few moments in prayer and then we'll address the text. Father God, I just I thank you for an opportunity to come and worship you together with this group of people. I'm I'm thankful that you give me an opportunity every day to worship, but it is it's something special to gather with other people who want to talk about how great and awesome you are, how you've changed their lives and how we just want to respond to that. And so I'm thankful for these people and their willingness to come together and lift you up. Lord, we know this is happening all around this world, that people are gathering to worship you this morning. And so we just we give you thanks for that. Lord, may you be glorified over all the earth. This morning as we open up the text in John chapter 5, may it speak to our hearts. May we be receptive uh, with, with ears that are ready to hear, eyes that are ready to see, and hearts that are willing to accept what you're trying to share with us today. Lord, let these be your words and let you receive all the glory for any good that comes out of it. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep's gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. We'll stop right there for just a second. Let's introduce this. What's going on in Jerusalem at this time? The feasts. There are three main feasts that are going on. If you lived within 20 miles and you were a male, you were required, obligated to go to one of these feasts. But while it was an obligation, it was a time of excitement. It was a time of celebrating. It was a feast. I mean, people ate. So Jesus goes there and what are you expecting Him to do? To to eat, to be at the feast. But Jesus is not at the feast. Where is He? This is the closest thing that they had, and you said pool, and you're right, but when I think of pool, I think of diving board and laying out and sunshades and relaxing. The, the pool, while that's the case for us now, back then that pool had completely different meanings. You see, they didn't have the hospitals like we have today. This would have been the closest thing that they had to a hospital. So when everybody else is partying, where does Jesus find himself? Among the sick. Jesus chose at a time where people would be celebrating. He knew there are some people who, were, who weren't celebrating. And he chose to go around and be with them. He goes to the pool, Bethesda, which is also known as the house of mercy. This is a place where people would have gone. And, and right here, we're going to get what most scholars uh, refer to as a scribal edition. Now, if you know a whole lot about math, you know that there's a number that comes after three and before five. That is 
4. But if you look in your New Testaments, John chapter 5, most of you will not have the number 4. What you will have is a little dot or a little number beside it that's going to take you to a footnote that is going to read verse 4. And here's how it works as quickly as I can do it. When, when the different writers, John in this instance, wrote down um, his, the gospel, okay, his account of the gospel, we do not have that. In its, we do not have, like we have the Declaration of Independence behind the glass, we don't have the, the gospel according to John, the original man, manuscript, yet. We may find it, but right now, there is not. We found copies after copies beyond that, and the very earliest copies don't have verse 4. And later on, as somebody was reading this, they were copying in, they said, you know what? People might not understand why people would be laying around this pool. They weren't laying around to ten. They were laying around because they believed that the waters would be stirred up. They believed that it was by an angel. Later on, that pool uh, had uh, was used uh, by this... Um, a group of people who believed in a pagan god, and they said it was the god who stirred up the pool. But nonetheless, the, the waters would be stirred up, which is down in your footnotes. It says something this, From time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters, the first one into the pool after each such, di- after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. So later on, a scribe saw that and said, you know what, we need to add that in for clarification. That got added in, and so everyone afterwards who uh, rewrote that, they added in verse 4. So what we know is this. We know that there was a reason why people might be going down to that pool. They did so because they thought in the off chance, if they were the first person that would get in after the pool was stirred, then they would be the one that would be healed. Verse 5. One who had been there, uh, had one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition, well, let's stop for just a second. Because I think there's a really important number also in there. Um, First off, um, Jesus is now at the hospital, per se, while the feasting is going on. And he does make his way to the feast uh, on many occasions. But this particular time, he's at the hospital. He's visiting with those. Um, and there's several things I want us to notice. First, are there a lot of sick people there? Yes. Okay, this is something that I've struggled with, and if you've lived on earth for any amount of time, and you believe in God, and I just spoke with someone who didn't believe in God, and this was his big question, why does God allow sorrow and hurt to to exist in this world? If He really loves people, why does He allow this? I can't fully explain it. But it's very clear that, that not everybody is healed. Jesus does not walk in there, and He could have, but He didn't walk in there and say, everybody's healed, get up, you can see, the leprosy is gone, the lame, you can walk now, you can hear. He could have said that, but instead He chose to reach out to one individual. Quite possibly, maybe the worst case there, If by nothing else, this man had been lame for how long? 38 years. 
Just uh, yesterday, my family was struck with illness. I had two kids, woke up yesterday morning, and were nauseated. And what a miserable time it was for them. And maybe a little for us, as we're trying to take care of them and get them where they need to go. And that's one day. I mean, they're kind of on the mend, hopefully feeling a little bit better this morning. But... You can be pretty miserable for one day of sickness. You know, I didn't do the math, but 38 times 365 is, it's a lot. Day after day after day, living, not being able to do anything. You know, I wonder how many times the guy wished that he could walk or wished that he could die, just something to to break the monotony of 38 years. But 38 years also has a great deal of significance and it's why Jesus does things and they're so powerful in the ways that He does them because 38 is a really important number. Do you remember the Israelites after they got out of Egypt? Remember Moses, let my people go. They go out, they cross the Red Sea, there's great rejoicing, hooray, we've crossed the Red Sea, God has delivered us, oh, I'm hungry, why don't you leave us out here to die? And it's this up and down, up and down, well, in the middle of this up and down, there was an issue uh, with the Ten Commandments, there was an issue uh, after the Ten Commandments had been made, they made a golden calf. Later on, they had an opportunity to enter into the land, and they said, we can't do it, these guys are too big. And God says, that's it. He says, you're going to wander in the desert. How long did they wander in the desert? Well, close. If you include all the time, it's 40 years. But let's go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 2. There's an interesting point I want to make here. This is after they're wandering in the desert. And this is being recounted. The Lord said, verse 13 of Deuteronomy chapter 2, Now get up and cross the Zered Valley. So we cross the valley. Verse 14 of Deuteronomy chapter 2. 38 years passed from the time when we left Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zered Valley. By then, that entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. 38 years. It just seems to me it's more than just a coincidence because what's really going on, it's more than just a man who gets up and walks. Jesus specifically chose this individual. And maybe it had something to do with the fact that he wanted to know, wanted the Jews to know this. For 38 years you wandered before you crossed over. And for 38 years, this man could go nowhere until I met him. Think about that for just a second. Let's flip back over to John chapter 5 and continue reading. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he learned he had been in this condition, pause for just a second. How did he learn of his condition? Did he ask? Maybe he asked. There's a lot of questions that I want to ask Jesus, and one of them is going to be, how did you do the things that you did? Did you do them because you were God? I mean, at two years old, 
Did you have the Scriptures memorized? Or did you sit down and did you have to study? Did he know this man was there because he's God and he's omniscient? Or because he's human, did he have to look around and ask? Now, I'm not trying to take away from the power of God. It's amazing that he could walk into a room and immediately know that it was this individual who had been lying there for 38 years. But maybe even more phenomenal is the fact that if he didn't know that already, that he chose to care enough to find out about the people who were hurting. Either way, it makes for an amazing God. That his son either would know about our hurts, and two, that he would care enough to ask and reach out. So then he asked this question that really just, from the very beginning it always bothered me. What question does he ask? Do you want to get well? And so now you know the title of my sermon. Duh! What do you mean do I want to get well? Is it, I mean, how many of you think that's a ridiculous question? It's a ridiculous question. Tell me how many of you, being at a doctor's office, being in a hospital, laying in bed, the doctor walks in and says, I have a medication that can heal you. Do you want to get well? No! The hospital food is great! I love that I get this little wired remote that I can change the channels to. It's really nice that I have, you know, a roommate I don't really know that we're, you know, sharing a room and we have this little thin curtain separating us. This is where I want to be. You're going to think, you're crazy. Who gave you a degree? You may be a doctor, but you're not that bright. Of course I want to get well. That's a good question Louise just asked. Didn't he say that so other people would know? This is the third miracle that's recorded here in in John. The first miracle that we know that Jesus did happens to be recorded in John. What, What miracle is that? Changing water to wine. The second miracle that you may or may not remember just last chapter was the man being raised down, lowered from the roof. Both of those were still pretty private ones. This one not only was much more public, but it took place on the Sabbath of this feast. So people would have known about this. Lots of people would have been around. This, in fact, is going to become a source of of tension in just a moment when people find out, um, spoiler alert, that in fact He is going to be healed. Jesus makes this very public miracle Uh, And then he's going to sneak away in just a minute. But he asked the question, do you want to get well? And I think that's a really, really, really good question. And I think after we answer with the knee-jerk, duh, of course I do, I want you to stop. And I want you to think about your life. You see, we're here because we believe God is the great healer. But yet many of us find ourselves living broken lives. We recognize God as Savior, but 
we don't always accept it. Maybe you're living in sin. Maybe you're living with anger. Maybe you're living with unforgiveness. And you know what? The hospital food isn't so bad after all. Maybe some of us find ourselves wanting to be sick. I want to share a short story uh, out of a book. This was written by William Barclay, uh, and it's covering... Uh, the miracles of Jesus. And it addresses this question that Jesus asked, uh, do you want to get well? <clears throat> Leslie Weatherhead quotes a case uh, in which a psychologist talks about whether or not someone would actually want to get well or rather stay in the state that they're in. There was a girl named Kathleen. She was about 20, young and healthy, and she was a typist in a village garage. She became engaged to a man of the village and was very happy. People would say she was radiantly happy. A good part of her happiness came from the fact that she was no longer going to be in a menial and unimportant job. She was going to become someone of importance, be of great importance and standing in the neighborhood. But this wealthy, young, handsome man broke off the engagement. From that day on, Kathleen developed certain symptoms. She refused to eat. She would put food in her mouth and then secretly spit it out in her handkerchief, hide it away and destroy it later. She became pale, thin, and anemic. All that the doctor could say to her parents was, you must make her eat. She was taken to a specialist and all he could say was that she must be forced to eat. In her desperation, her parents brought her to see if she could be treated by some psychological methods. By this time, she only weighed 63 pounds and was a victim of famine. All she could say was she knew she ought to eat, but an inward power was forbidding her to do so. Under psychological treatment, her trouble became clear. Subconsciously, she wanted to starve herself to death. To be ill was to have continued prominence and not to sink back into the obscurity of being a typist in a village garage. To be ill and die was to have her revenge on her ex-fiancé. If she died, he would be responsible or feel responsible for her death. She was ill for no other reason than she wanted to be ill. She resisted cure simply because she did not want to be well. Fortunately for her, psychological treatment was able to reveal the truth to Kathleen and to effect a cure. See, Kathleen didn't want to get well. Because she knew that if she got well, then she would be forgotten. She would go back into the garage. She would be the topist and no one would really remember her. But to be ill meant that she had a reason for living. And in living, if she died, then she even had her revenge on the man who had ruined her life. I'm going to shift gears for just a minute. I want to talk specifically about a topic that strangles and entangles many of us. And it's unforgiveness. 
You see, sometimes it's so much easier to be angry than to forgive. Like my daughter who carries her around her little binky, her little blanket, to take away that, that blanket remo- removes her security. It's part of her identity, who she is. And for some of us, our anger, our resentment that we hold towards other people, that's the blanket that we cling to. It's our identity. It's how we're defined. If we hold on to that, we can be angry and we can feed off that. And I don't say this because I know of other people who talk about it. I've held that blanket and clutched it tightly and said, I'm not going to get rid of it. I remember one night having a conversation with my wife after having been hurt terribly by a group of people. My wife says, Doug, you just need to pray for these people. And I said, I don't want to. I felt good about the hurt. I loved, in my own mind, retelling the story over and over again, how I was the victim and how they were monsters. And that became who I was. That was a part of me. I didn't want forgiveness. I didn't want reconciliation. I didn't want anything good to happen to them. I thought of terrible things. I thought of how nice it would be if the place where they worked burned down and they didn't have a job anymore. I thought how great it would be if their spouses left them. I thought how nice it would be if they would be humiliated the way that I felt they had humiliated me. It's what I wanted. It's what I feasted on. It's something I told myself over and over again. And it was a dark cloud in which I lived under. And it was hard to get rid of. It's hard to fight that. But I remember reading over John chapter 5 and thinking about my own situation. When here I am, laying at the pool, being so loathsome and angry. And I remember thinking, maybe this isn't such a ridiculous question after all. Maybe I don't want to get well. Maybe there's something special about being angry. That I can walk into a room and people recognize me as the victim. And there's at least, at least I can get some satisfaction, maybe some comfort from that. But if I forgive them, I think I'm just letting them off the hook, aren't I? I mean, they did something terrible, and if I forgive them, then I'm not really seeking out justice, and that can't be the right thing. Surely God wants me to be angry with them, because they deserve that. You see, Jesus was trying to show not just this lame man, but all of Israel before, all of us now, and even more specifically, these Jews. He says, here's the deal. You know, the law doesn't cut it. Whether it was the Israelites 38 years and wandering, or the Jews now who had all these laws and rules and regulations that says you have to follow these things. He says, that's not it. You're waiting on a a chance that just maybe 
the pool will be stirred and maybe somebody's there to lift you up and put you inside and maybe you're that one or maybe you're the one that waits 38 years and nothing happens. I think what's most interesting about John chapter 5 is not simply the fact that Jesus asked the question, do you want to get well? But the reply from the man who had been laying there. What do you suppose you would have said if somebody said, do you want to get well? You would think you would say, yes, I do. But as we read on, we find that's not really the case at all. Verse 7 says, sir, the invalid responded, I... I have no one to help me to get into the pool and when the water is when the water is stirred while I'm trying to get in someone else goes down ahead of me. Do you want to get well? I do, but God, you know, I just I don't know that I can forgive this person. Do you want to get well? I do, I want to be restored, but I'm really having trouble letting go of this sin. Do you want to get well? I do, but right now I'm really busy. If you can just... Can, can I slot you for another day? Do you want to get well? You see... Jesus asked that question of all of us. Do you want to get well? Do you want to have something more in life than what this earth is offering? Do you want to get past resentment and anger and sin? Are you tired of chasing the thing that's supposed to give you happiness but never really does? Do you want to get well? The last point I want to make is this. I think it's important to note that Jesus takes the initiative. But as always, He requires a response. And that's up to you. He's not going to force it on you. You can't allow your parents or your minister or your elders or your sister... They don't make that decision for you. No one else does. Not your spouse. No one makes that decision. Do you want to get well? There's only one way. It's not a lump sum of money. It's not for your spouse to start doing the things that you want them to do. It's not a promotion. It's not a new car, a bigger house, more friends, a better boss. It's just one thing. Jesus. Now Jesus makes the initiative and you're in everyone's life. He gives everybody a choice. But then you have to step out. And how we believe from Scripture in doing that is that you have to decide that you're going to die. That's, that's what Jesus says. He says, here's how it works. If you want to be healed, if you want to have restoration and reconciliation in your life, if you want to have life eternal, here's what you have to do. You have to die, and here's how we're going to do this. 
It's found all throughout Scripture. Both Jesus did it, and then He commanded it, and then His followers also did it. He said, here's what's going to happen. We're going to signify your death because we're going to take you down and we're going to put you under the water and we're going to bury you. You are dead, and when you rise up, the sins that was in your life has been washed off. It's a purification process that's brought about by the blood of Jesus. He says, when you rise, when you come out of that water, you are a new creation. He says, you have to choose to die and be immersed in death and come up in me and then you will have eternal life. This morning, my prayer for you is if you have not made that decision to die, that you will begin considering that decision this morning and you think, you know what? I, I do want to be healed. And I know the only way I can do it is through Jesus and the baptism that He offers. And in doing so, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now there is nothing more that I want in my life than the Holy Spirit. And He offers that to each one of us this morning. Maybe you've already been buried. Maybe you've risen to walk a new life. But you found yourself by a pool living in agony or in sin. And you're broken. And Jesus comes and says, I can make you well. At the end of this section, Jesus, in fact, calls the man. He heals him. Before the man stands up, before the man picks up his mat, before the man walks, Jesus heals him right there, still on the ground. You're healed. But the man had to get up. This morning, Jesus is offering you healing. And what He says is, I've healed you. All you have to do is, you need to get up. Let's be a group of people that will get up, take our mat, and celebrate a God who's healed us. If there's any way that we can help you this morning, we have a a baptistry back here. We'll baptism and you can be... We'll baptize you this morning and you can start a new life. If you just need prayers, we can pray for you publicly right here up front. We'll have an elder in the back room. Feel free to go there. It's down that hallway. You can speak to one confidentially and they'll pray with you there. If there's any way that we can serve you this morning, would you come as we stand and sing?